Our uh, scripture reading today is uh, Michael Moet is going to read, and it's from Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. And in honor of God's word, if you would stand with us. Listen as I read. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know not... For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the Lord, word of the Lord. Uh, so we've been working our way uh, through Romans chapter 8. And uh, we have uh, called this series Exploring the Life and Love that, that Jesus Offers. And um, we have uh, three more weeks after this, um, but it's a, it's a large chapter, and it's a glorious chapter. And there's a ton of content in here for us to consider uh, and to, uh, to wrestle with. Um, and so just as a, as a little bit of a review, if, if we were to back up and ask what's been going on in Romans chapter 8, just specifically this, this chapter, verses 1 through 13, um, they, they reveal to us this reality that the Spirit is at work in the people of God, and that the Spirit has put to death, uh, it, 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 it has put us to death, and it's, and it's it put the flesh to death, and it's brought us to life. It's actually transitioned something inside of us. It's, it's made a dramatic difference. And as the Spirit has brought our hearts to life, uh, this opens up a logic, a whole new way of, of doing life. When you get to verse 14, what we looked at last Sunday, we see that that new life involves a, a new family. And this new family then, and it, it, it opens up this idea that Jesus is our perfect brother, uh, this, this brother that came to, to, to rescue us, that we look around and we realize that we have way more brothers and sisters than we would have ever guessed. Uh, we were invited last week to actually realize that within the family of God, within the church, the primary way that we should see each other is as a brother and a sister. And so we have this glorious new family. Well, this new family then, as we're going to see today, reveals a future glory that brings a new hope. So today we're going to have uh, four points. I know it's going to mess you up, but we're going to have four points, and uh, we're going to look at what was, what is, what will be, and then what now. And so uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 8. So as you come to Romans chapter 8, uh, verses 18 through 25, you know, maybe your Bible has subtitles, and my Bible does have subtitles, and the subtitle right before verse 18 says, Future Glory. And as you just heard these verses read, um, what, you, what you can sense pretty quickly is that as Paul writes these few verses, he is, he is uh, working from what he assumes is a common understanding. And that common understanding is the story of the world. And in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25, they are very, very rooted 
in, the, in, 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 uh, in an understanding of Genesis 1 through 3. And so if we don't take a minute and orient ourselves to that story, to the reality of Genesis uh, chapters 1, 2, and 3, the very beginning of the Bible, then we are not going to understand what Paul uh, is talking about. So in these first eight verses, in these eight verses, he is inferring that something has happened to creation. And we're going to get to that. But what was it like originally? So just a couple quick minutes here. What was? The Bible reveals to us that God created the world. And, and right along with all the complexity and all the unanswered questions that come with that, we know that it was good, that it was really, really good. That in Genesis 1 and 2, the first two chapters of the Bible, as creation is revealed, as creation is explained, it's affirmed as good, good, very good. The whole thing, it's all good. It's, it's, it's uh, created in this condition of goodness. The Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, likes to use this Hebrew word, shalom. And it's a word that we talk about frequently here, and it describes the world's original condition. And one of uh, a, a, a great writer, a book that we've had on our book walls, is written by a guy named Cornelius Plantinga. And he says this, Shalom means a universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Now, you might know the word shalom and think it means peace, and it does mean peace. But when the Bible is using it, it's just, it's, it's revealing the fact that this sense of peace is so much more than maybe our natural understanding of the word peace. It has this idea that the state of affairs are, are so rich and so good. Shalom is the way that things ought to be. That's the condition in which the world and humanity uh, were created. Every single thing about it. Humanity was in the image of God. Creation was perfect. Shalom. Perfect shalom. The earth, the environment, men, women, no disease, no pollution, no re relational conflict with each other, no separation from our creator God. It was really perfect. Rich peace. And the reason for this pervasive uh, peace was that all of creation, including all humans, was in right relationship to the God that created it. That, that is ultimate peace. This, this sense of relational rightness, that it's not just that individual things were right, but it's the way that those things interacted with each other that was right. And so the, the, the original design, the original creation was, uh, was full of shalom. It was ultimate peace. Well, if that's what was, then what happened? Because I think we can all recognize that the description I just gave is not the description of the world in October 2021. Uh, that's generally not the way that we're experiencing things. Not only do we individually have issues, but we're having tons of issues in the way that we relate uh, to, to each other and to the world. And so what, what happened? Well, if that's what was, what is? And again, these verses in Romans chapter 8, uh, they are reflecting on this reality that while creation itself was good, as Paul writes, he, he recognizes that something's happened to creation 
He says that creation's in bondage, that creation is longing, that creation is, it's like it's, it's, it's been injured. It's like there's something has happened to it. It's been put in prison. So what, what is he referring to? Well, Genesis 1 and 2 is unfortunately followed by Genesis chapter 3. And what we find out in Genesis chapter 3 is that Shalom is vandalized. That Adam and Eve, who God created, who were walking with God, walking in God's good way, chose to reject God's good way. Chose to do their own thing, to rebel against the God of heaven. And instead of choosing his good way, they chose their own. And when they did, the Bible tells us that sin broke into the world. And when sin broke into the world, it vandalized shalom. And that vandalism, God has something to say about it. And if you look at Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 23, uh, this is what Paul says. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves. And so Paul, at some level, is, is distinguishing creation from humans. And Paul is saying every bit of it, every bit of it has been infected. Every bit of it has been affected. Every bit of it is, is paying the price. Every bit of it is feeling the pain that sin brought to the world. I do think it's important to recognize um, that uh, Romans 8, where as Paul writes this, he, he is inviting us into some complexity about the condition of the world. Because what he's telling us is that the effects of, of, of humans' re rejection of God's good way has a result that is both passive and active. If you notice in the verses there, it says that, it, that that's, uh, in verse 20 that creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. And then we recognize that, that the, as the Bible talks about the effects of sin in the world, there's this passive reality in which because of sin's presence, uh, there's, there's brokenness all around us. And we experience brokenness not because we do something overtly, but just because the world is broken. So there's this passive sense in which the world is suffering, but then there's an active sense in which God has responded to the severity of sin and he's done something about it. God hates sin and he's doing something about it. And some of that is, is painful. It says in verse 20 though, but he subjected it with hope or, or out of hope with the desire. God, God's doing this for a reason. And so the effects of sin on the world are passive, but they're also active. God's doing something about the condition of the world. God's doing something about humanity's rejection of his good way. And we deal with those consequences every single day. Every single day. There's not a day that you wake up that you're not dealing with the consequences of the brokenness of the world. Every ache in your body, every tension in every relationship, every time things don't work, Aren't you tired of things not working? Like flies on the spotlights, you know? Like every single time. It's just, it's just a recognition. It's, it's, it's an invitation to remember that Shalom's not here. You know, when God gave Adam and Eve the garden, he said, here's the garden, make something of it. Cultivate it. Use your creativity and go for it. Build it. Do something. And off they went. And we don't know how long that period was. But Adam and Eve were using their gifts in the world to make the garden, uh, to make something of the garden, to organize it. 
And then when sin shows up, do you know what God says? Now it's going to be by the sweat of your brow. You, you, you were making so much progress with this garden, and it was so easy. Some of you are gardeners. I'm not. Everything I try to do does not work out. And it's like, it's, it's by the sweat of my brow. Adam and Eve, before sin, were cultivating this garden, and it was just, it was easy. It was joyful. When sin shows up, God says, now it's going to be by the sweat of your brow. Now, now things have gotten hard. Things aren't going to work out right. It's not the way things should be. Shalom is broken. Well, if that was what was, and that's what is, what will be? As you continue to move through these verses, um, you know, verse, these, these eight verses point to what was, point to this idea of shalom. They reveal that shalom's not here anymore. There's brokenness. But that brokenness does have a sense of hope. Paul uses the word hope a few times in these verses. And he's pointing us to this reality that our hope is in Christ's making it right project or Christ's putting it right project, as uh, N.T. Wright says. And what is coming is true freedom for the world. Verse 21 says uh, that that the creation itself will be set free. Verse 23, and not only creation, but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in this hope we are saved. So Paul, as he is reflecting back on this story of the world, that he is in a sense assuming that we know, and he goes back and he says, here's what was originally. Remember? Here's what's happened to that original design. And then he points us forward with this sense of hope, with this recognition that Christ is going to put it right, that he's going to bring freedom to the world. You know, a few months ago, we were in Psalm 148. And the psalmist in Psalm 148, he basically says, everything up there and everything down here, praise the Lord. That's what he says. That's how it should be, is everything in the heavenlies and everything on the earth should praise the Lord. And Paul says that day's coming. That, that day's coming where everything up there and everything down here, everything praises the Lord. No more distortion, no more brokenness, no more pain, no more sin. You don't, don't you see? He, you know, Jesus has started with human hearts. When, when Jesus came and, and lived his earthly life and he lived the life that we should have lived and then died on the cross in the place that we should have died, what, what Jesus did in, that, in, 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 in his work on this earth, when he died on the cross and went to the grave and then conquered sin and Satan and death and all of our enemies at his glorious resurrection, when he did all of that, it was the, it was the grand announcement that his Putting It Right project had started. And then for 2,000 years now, Jesus has been primarily working on making human hearts right, on redeeming human hearts. But he is at work in all kinds of places And he invites us to join him in this putting it right project. The Bible also tells us that no matter how much we work, we can't bring it to completion. We should give our lives to it. We should love to serve our neighbors and to serve uh, for the good of the world. But we can't complete it. The Bible says that Jesus is going to come back and finish that project. That Jesus is not done his putting it right project. He's making hearts right all the time. All the time. Every time someone cries out and confesses the name of Christ, their heart is made new. Their heart is restored to God. But Jesus is going to come back and make all things new. Paul in this passage references adoption, redemption, restoration, salvation. 
If you think about some of those terms, like we are adopted into our ultimate family. Paul says that day's coming. And in a sense, it's already happened if you've confessed Christ. But there's a day coming where that family will be final, where it will be, it will be revealed, it will be in full. The redemption of our bodies, as he says. Don't you long for the redemption of your body? Our souls matter to God, but so do our bodies. Do you recognize that the promise of the, of the, of the Bible in this, this promise of restoration is that our bodies are going to be redeemed? They're not throwaways. They're actually going to be transformed. And he talks about salvation and restoration, that, that we will become what we were made to be. Fullness, wholeness, our hearts, our bodies, animals, plants, the atmosphere, systems, relationships, communities. Everything will be made new. You know, yesterday um, we were at my daughter's uh, regatta. One of my daughters is, is rowing uh, for the Traverse City uh, Tritons. And it is, you know, if you have never uh, had exposure to rowing, it is su- such a great sport. And uh, yesterday, if you can believe, October uh, 8th or October 9th, uh, it's, you know, 72 degrees and sunny. And uh, for rowing, you don't want a lot of wind. And there wasn't a lot of wind. And uh, it was just, it was a, a beautiful day and a lot of uh, just beautiful, beautiful memories. And our, our daughter did really well. Um, and various friends came out to, to cheer uh, for her. Uh, her sisters were there. Um, a few friends were there. Uh, her young life leader, uh, Jenny Anderson, was there. Uh, a couple neighbors came, Rose and, and Nettie. And, uh, and, and Gretchen Boyd uh, came out to, to cheer for her as well. And some of you know some of those names that I mentioned. Um, and as, as we were watching the, uh, the race, um, Gretchen and I got talking about rowing. And uh, we found out that we both have a little fascination with, with rowing. And uh, as we talked, we realized that we both had kind of the same, uh, I don't know if I'd say a regret, but the same wish. And that is that we wish we would have gotten into rowing when we were young. We wish that opportunity would have been available to us. We wish that when we were my daughter's age, we could have been uh, on a, a rowing team. And I said to Gretchen, now, um, Gretchen, is, um, I, I, Gretchen is 80 years old, just had her 80th birthday this spring, and I'm not far behind. And we're, and, 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 and we're, talk, we're talking about like this, this little regret of not getting exposed to rowing earlier in our life. And I, and I said to Gretchen, you know what? We'll row together in the eternal kingdom. You know, Gretchen grabbed my arm, as Gretchen often does, and she's like, yes, 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 we will. We will row in the kingdom with no sickness and no sorrow and no pain. And then she said, it's such good news, isn't it? And I'm like, you know, yes, Gretchen. Yes, it, it, it is such good news. Everything made right. No more brokenness or death or sin. It is coming. But not yet. So what are we to do in the meantime? Paul, in a sense, is saying, I need you guys to have this backstory. This is the trajectory of the world. This is what was. This is what is. This is what will be. This is the trajectory. This is the story. You're part of it. This is what's happening in the world. It was once right. It's been broken. Jesus is making it right. And he's going to come back and actually make the whole thing right. So what do we do in the meantime? 
Now, now, now stick with me here. What now? I want, I want to remember what Paul is doing in Romans 8 and how Romans 8 plays into the whole story of Romans, the whole letter. So if, if you're in your Bible, you're going to recognize quickly that there's seven chapters before this. And if you've been around for the last few weeks, I've been trying to give somewhat of a, a summary of the argument that Paul is, is making as he writes this letter to this group of Christians 2,000 years ago. And this is kind of our uh, Cliff Notes version. H- here it is. Everybody needs to be made right. So sin has broken our relationships, and it's broken our relationships with God too. It's kind of Romans chapter 1. Nobody can make themselves right. Romans chapter 2. No matter how hard you try, you think you have the law, you think you're a good obeyer, you think you do good deeds, it doesn't matter how much you do, you can't make yourself right. Three, only Christ can make you right. This is found in Romans chapter 3, as, there's this, uh, as, as Paul reveals that that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to make you right. So only Jesus can make you right. Only faith in Jesus will make you right. Find that out in Romans chapter 4. That while Christ is the only one who can make you right, the way that this is set up is that you put your faith, you put your trust in him. Only, Christ, only faith in Christ will make you right. And then the fifth component is that anyone can be made right. In Romans chapter 5, we find this interaction where the first Adam, the Adam of Genesis, failed. And when he failed, he brought condemnation to the whole world. But then Jesus comes, and Paul refers to him as the second Adam, meaning that that first Adam failed the test, and he brought condemnation to the whole world. But the second Adam, Christ, he's come, and he didn't fail the test. He aced the test. And while the first Adam brought condemnation, the second Adam brings the opportunity for redemption, for rescue, for reconciliation, for salvation. This is the good news that Paul wants the people of Rome to grasp. It's the good news that he wants us to grasp. And then in Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, he begins to answer the question of what does life look like for the one who actually responds to this gospel news? So the one who actually realizes that I'm not right, I can't make myself right, only Jesus can do that, and they put their hope in him. They, they recognize that this is their one hope for rescue. What does life look like for them? Well, in chapter 6, he says that we're called to walk in newness of life, in this spirit that has birthed them. In chapter 7, we find out that we're still going to have battles, but in, right in the midst of all those battles, there's this huge encouragement that the real you is the you that wants to follow God. So if you're in a battle and you're saying, man, I'm such a mess. I feel like a hypocrite. The things I say I'm going to do, I don't do. And the things that I say I'm not going to do are the things I end up doing. Paul says, I can relate to those tensions. They're terrible. I hate that. I hate that part of navigating the life in this broken world. But guess what? If you've come to Christ by faith, the real you is the you that wants to obey God. So you might be so confused about what, what your motivations are. You might be so confused about why you fail. But Paul says, if you've come to faith in Christ, the real you is the you that wants to obey God. What good news that is. And then we come to chapter 8. And in chapter 8, in a sense, he's saying, what does it look like? Starts off by saying there's no condemnation. So your slate really is wiped clean. Like all of it. Every bit of it. Can you believe that? Wipe clean, all of your debts erased. Every, if you thought of it as a credit card, 
Your, your, your debt on that credit card is more than you could ever imagine. And it is wiped clean. No more condemnation. Then he turns, turns his attention uh, to the, the leading of the Spirit. That you're not doing this alone. That the Spirit of God who has made you new is with you and speaking to you and, 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 and guiding you and leading you. He speaks about the children of God and the siblings that we have, our, our older brother Christ, and all of these brothers and sisters seated in this room and around the globe, many who've died, some who are alive now, many who are yet to be born. This beautiful picture of life with Christ. But do you remember last week as we came to verse 17, what Paul says? you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 8, verse 17. He says, if we're children and we're heirs, we're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. But Paul is saying a primary point of evidence that we are the children of God, that we are heirs with Jesus, that we have really been made new by the Spirit, is that we suffer. That we suffer with Christ. And you might say, whoa, whoa. Who, who said anything about suffering? I, I didn't sign up for suffering. I thought this was to get me out of the suffering. I came to Jesus so I don't have to suffer anymore. And Paul says, well, actually, that's part of the deal. Is that we navigate our sufferings. That we recognize that when we suffer, we're suffering with Christ. And you might say, well, that doesn't sound too good. We're supposed to find hope in the midst of our suffering? I'm not, not so sure about that. Well, if that's where you're at, it's a legitimate question. I might even say it's a, it's a good question. How can we navigate this life like Romans 8, 18 through 25 suggests? I mean, just look at verse 18. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors. Oh, for I consider, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What, what is Paul talking about? You know, maybe you say he's never really suffered. He doesn't know what real suffering is. No one would say that if they've been through really hard things. No one would say that it's like, well, I don't count this, you know, it's worth that much. I don't compare this as comparing with what's coming. No, most of us get in our suffering and we drown. And so you might say, well, Paul's writing that because he never really suffered. <laughs> no, if, if you knew Paul's story, Paul has suffered as much as or more than every person in this room. And yet he still has the audacity to say, this is how you navigate the world. As he comes to the end, he says that we live in hope. That we have this confidence about what's coming, this confidence about, about life. Paul, Paul's suggesting that the promise of rescue, redemption, adoption, that all of those promises, that they stir in us a hopefulness that holds us up as we face the brokenness and suffering of the world. That's, that's what he's saying. He's saying, I'm going to give you some promises, and those should hold you up. You might be growing more skeptical, because you might say, I know those promises, and I'm still dealing with my suffering, and it still hurts more than I can say. Well, here's the good news. There are promises, but it's more than a promise. Paul's actually talking about a transformation. Now, a few weeks ago, I used an illustration from the movie The Matrix. 
And the week after, like actually like two days after I preached that sermon, I uh, ran into another illustration. I was like, oh, shoot, that would have even been better. But as pastors do, we put things in files. And uh, there came a point just a few weeks later where this is going to be, uh, uh, it's, going to fit, it's going to fit here. And, and, and he, here's, here's what I want you to think about. Paul is offering us promises, but he's offering us, it's, it's more than a promise. It's, it's a transformation. Now, some of you may be familiar with the, the books um, or the movies, uh, The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit. Um, and if you're familiar with that story, then you're aware of the fact that there are these four characters that are uh, the, the primary characters, these, these four simple characters. They are called hobbits, uh, and they, they live in this little, beautiful, uh, you know, this quiet uh, country called uh, the, the, the Shire. And they love it. They love their place, and they love their neighbors. They love their people. It's sweet. It's, it's, it's uh, you know, it's calm. It's pretty. And they love it there. But the nature of this story is that these four characters get taken out of the Shire. And they get caught up into an adventure. An adventure that they never saw coming. And this adventure takes them through all kinds of, all kinds of things. All kinds of um, <clears throat> terrible, scary things. Uh, they face the worst things in the world. They see evil for what it is. They see awful, awful things. But they triumph. They win. If they don't go through the adventure, the Shire is going to be lost. But they do, and they triumph, and the Shire is saved. And if you know the story, obviously there's tons more details. But do you know what happens towards the end? They, 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 they triumph, and they're so excited to go back to the Shire. They are so excited to go back home to the land that they always loved, where they were going to you know, go back and live happily ever after. after. And they get back, and there it is. There, there's the beautiful, calm, quiet, simple Shire. Beautiful, peaceful. But they quickly realize that something is not right. They realize that something has happened. And what they realize is that the Shire is the same, but they're different. Why are they different? Because on this adventure, they met some people. Some people from a far-off land that they actually refer to as uh, over the Western Seas. And what ends up happening is because of these relationships with the people that they run into, they are transformed. They, they realize that the soil of the roots of their soul are planted in, where, where, where their hearts are rooted, it's, it's changed. It used to be the Shire. That used to be their North Star. That used to be their place of comfort. That used to be the place where they found their hope. But this adventure opened them up to the realities of the world. It transformed them, and it uprooted their soul. It uprooted their heart, and it planted in a place far off, over the ocean, over the seas. Do you, do you see what the author told him? Do you see what he's doing? Because of their adventures, because of their experiences, these four hobbits now find themselves navigating life differently. They're way more steady. So one of the things that happens is they come into the Shire and they quickly realize that they're, 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 they're other, um, the other people who live there, they're getting worked up about little things. And they look around and they're like, why are the other hobbits getting so worked up about that? That doesn't matter. They're making it seem like that's the most important thing in the world. and like That doesn't matter. But they realize that the other hobbits can't see it. 
They realize that their adventures have opened them up to this bigger story. And the things that confuse other people or that scare other people aren't aren't scary to them. They've found in their adventures that they've actually uh, become, uh, they've, they've gotten a new perspective. So they're more steady. But they're also a lot more odd. You remember this? They're, they're, they're changed and they're strange and they don't fit in quite like they used to fit in. The people who are there, all of their longstanding friends, they don't quite understand them. They, they actually say that these four hobbits, that they laugh more than they used to laugh and that they cry more than they used to cry and that they sing and they're singing all the time. And some of the songs their other hobbits knew, but most of the songs the hobbits didn't know. And they're saying, what's wrong with those four? They, they've gotten weird. They've gotten strange. They even go down to the shore and they listen to the waves. And the suggestion is that they're hearing music that no one else can hear. The world's opened up. Their friends are saying, what in the world are they doing? And the four of them say, how is it that they can't see. What's happened? It's not their country anymore. They see the Shire from a new perspective. The village of hobbits don't know anything other than the Shire. You see, almost no one leaves the Shire. That was their whole world. They even indicate that on the map, everything around the Shire is white. And so it's like nothing's out there. It's just the Shire. That's all there is to life. That's all there is to the world. But these four hobbits got invited outside of it. Their eyes were opened and they realized that the Shire wasn't the whole story. They realized that that wasn't all that life was. Can you relate to this? It's like a person who would say, you know, the only wealth I have is my money. And if I lose my money, I don't have any more wealth. Or or the only beauty that I have is my appearance. And if my physical looks are gone, then I don't have any more beauty. Or you say that my only, the only love that I have is if my friends love me. And if they stop loving me, then no one will love me anymore. You see, that, that, that's an understanding of the world that has this as all there is. It has the here and now, the dirt of this earth, as all there is. Functionally, it's the shire. And we don't realize that there's anything beyond the shire. Whatever this is, it's all I got. This is life. If anything goes wrong inside the Shire, everybody falls apart because that's all they have. Now think about your life. How often is this true? How often is this part of your experience of the world <clears throat> where you, 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 you look at something and you feel like it's falling apart and you don't know what to do? You, you think that hope is gone. But for these four hobbits, as they've come back to to the Shire, they realize that their true country is actually somewhere else. You know, the Bible uses this kind of language. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, there's this recounting of many, many Christians that over the course of the story of the Bible, God worked in their life in really, really significant ways. And at one point in, the, in, in, this, uh, in this text, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. All of these superheroes, all of these people that that placed their faith in God, that trusted God, that walked in obedience, that took huge risks. This is what it says. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them 
and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Then in verse 16, it says, They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. You see, as Paul talks about how do we navigate the world, how do we endure our sufferings, how do we go through this, these situations and not fall apart, part of what Paul is pointing to is this. Do you think this is all there is? You, have you fallen into a shire mentality where you think the dirt of the earth is all there is? That what you can see and touch is all there is? Because listen, if you believe that, then of course you're going to fall apart if those things are threatened. Of course you're not going to be able to navigate the world. Of course your suffering is going to derail you. This, if, if you believe this is all there is and you're losing it, but what if there's more? All of these people recorded in Hebrews 11, it says they died without receiving the promise. But they saw it. They saw it. And they believed it. And they hoped for it. And they longed for this better city. And God says, that's exactly what I'm doing. That is exactly what I'm doing. I'm making, I've made another city. It's bigger and it's more glorious. Root your heart there. Root your life there. It will give you a perspective on all the ups and downs of this life. And when you're on the ups, you'll laugh more. And when you're on the downs, you'll cry more. Why? Because you're going to recognize that your God is so good that he would allow you to enjoy things like this. And when you're in the depths and you're feeling the pain, you're going to cry more because you know the world's not supposed to be like this. Christians, like for example, should hate death. We should cry more at funerals. But we should also be schizophrenic. Christians should be a sight to behold at funerals. We should be weeping our eyes out because death is not part of the original story. And yet we don't have to mourn as those who have no hope. There, there should be this confidence in the way that we navigate these hardships and these sorrows. Why aren't we living like this more? You know, the, the four hobbits came back and they were weird. Christians should be weirder. We should be experienced as weirder. Why does it seem like so few Christians are navigating life with this perspective? Maybe it's because our hearts haven't actually been transformed. Maybe it's because our hearts actually haven't been relocated. Maybe we haven't actually really seen what's beyond the shire. Have you? Have you been transformed by the glorious work of Christ? Have you left the shire? Have you joined the real adventure? You know, the Bible is not being overdramatic when it uses terms like conversion and being born again and transformed and regenerated. Th those, aren't, those aren't just like these generic illustrations. Th th those are real terms, the realest real. And it's offered through the person and work of Jesus. Have your eyes been opened to the bigger story that reorders all our hopes and all our fears? You know, at the beginning of this series, I read the quote from Derek Thomas that Romans 8 shows us how the gospel brings us all the way home. We got three more sermons in this series, and if you can believe it, uh, the news keeps on getting better. Uh, let's, let's pray. God, we thank you for uh, a text like this that so confronts our normal way of seeing the world. It is so easy to get bogged down with the here and now. 
it is so easy for the, the things that get threatened in this life to make us feel as, like the, as if this is all there is. As if this is it. The dirt of the earth. What we can touch and feel. But God, would you help us to receive from Paul this invitation to see something bigger? To actually put our hope, not in things that we can see, but in things that are unseen. In this promise that, that you have actually made a greater city. That you have, you have an eternity that is waiting. That you really are going to make all things new. We thank you for this good news. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.